Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are to the podcast this week. I just wanted to say, you know, Feisty's first online course fueled. It went on, it was on sale for 10 days. The sale closed last Friday. So this podcast came out Monday. But honestly, we were just blown away by everyone's interest in the topic of fueling and nutrition and also all the like the various things um attached to that, like body image, um, LEA, red S, et cetera, et cetera. So we were, yeah, on, honestly, absolutely blown out of the water by um, the response that we got to the course, to the topics of the course. And I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who signed up for trusting us with this very small piece of your ongoing education. We we do take that very seriously. So thank you for trusting us with that. Um, as I said, sales are now closed, but um, we will be reopening uh, the course for a summer school edition in June. So if you feel you missed out, watch out for that. Uh, this time we had a menopause cohort as well as a um, open founding cohort. And so who knows what fun cohorts we'll come up with for June, but the, the course will reopen then. So my guest for today, I've, I've been sitting on this interview for a little while because we had, you know, quite a lot of conversations about food and nutrition and fueling and the psychology of fueling the last few weeks. And so I am very excited to finally be presenting my um, conversation with Ashley Brown today. So Ashley Brown, Dr. Ashley Brown, I should say, um, Ashley, we, we, f we went out and Millie, who used to be the producer with us here at Feisty, she went out and tried to find someone who was really informed about the intersection between women's history and black women's history in sport. Um, and we found Ashley. So Ashley is an assistant professor and Alan H. Selling Chair in the History of Sport and Society at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research and teaching focus on African-American history, women's history, and the history of sport. Ashley believes that sport is intrinsic to American culture and history, carrying the potential to initiate critical discussions about race, gender, mass culture, and media, and labor. She is also the author of the recent book, Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson. 
based on extensive archival work and oral histories, Serving Herself sets Gibson's life and choices against the backdrop of the Great Migration, Jim Crow racism, the integration of American sports, the civil rights movement, the Cold War, and second wave feminism. I'm a total history lover, but even if you aren't, once you understand the barriers that Elthea faced and how she overcame those barriers, you can't help but be inspired. I also learned a ton from Ashley's insights on Althea's personality traits that created her success. Talking to Ashley, I honestly felt like I was sort of sitting at the feet of a woman with great wisdom. She did not love to talk about herself, but she has clearly spent loads of time learning from other people, both in present times and in history. And we actually stayed on the call and talked for like 30 minutes after we finished the interview. That is how much I enjoyed talking to her. So I hope that you also really enjoyed this conversation. Professor Ashley Brown, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that we um, that we found you. You know, it took. I, I really wanted to have a conversation about like Black women's history and sport, and I said to my producer, like, "Listen, can you find us an expert?" Like, and so she <laughs> she searched far and wide, and we found you. Well, lucky me. Yay. Um, okay, so I read in your bio earlier when I was going through things that um, you believe that sport is intrinsic to American culture and history, uh, which I strongly believe in, and that it carries the potential to um, initiate critical discussions about race, about gender, about culture and media and labor. Um, can you give some examples of what you mean by that? Like, what are those critical conversations that you see happening right now? Well, that's a part of my faculty bio. And I certainly try to uh, carry out those ideas in the work that I do with my students. So as your listeners may or may not know, I'm a professor, assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, I teach courses in African-American history, women's history, and the history of sport. And I find myself really excited uh, when I have these opportunities to, I think, open students' eyes. Uh, to stories about uh, the United States that they're maybe not expecting to hear or to learn in a course that has sports in the title. So they might think about Jackie Robinson, for example, as the first Black man to play Major League Baseball. They most likely know that. They've seen 42. But they might not think about Jackie Robinson's life away from baseball. And so, for example, the struggles that he and his wife had in um, finding a home, securing securing property uh, to build a home in, in Connecticut and, and in the New York region. And so then that lets me tell them stories about, well, the history of African-Americans and issues of housing discrimination, for example. Or when we think about the struggles of African-American athletes on their teams, well, these are African-Americans like so many millions others uh, who faced employment discrimination or um, members of the, the Great Migration, for example, that those stories um, they relate to African-Americans broadly, but I can teach them that history by getting them to think about, to focus on the athletes that we're discussing regularly. Mm -hmm. So can you unpack that for me just a little bit? Like what would have been the struggle? You know, I think that I would share that same 
assumption or whatever that your students might have that like if you're a celebrity and you're playing baseball then you shouldn't have trouble purchasing property that's the thing right that uh and it's one of the things that fascinates me about Althea Gibson's story the idea that you could have someone who was internationally known who for a time in the 1950s was one of the most famous women in the world but she was also a subject of Jim Crow and this was her experience. It was the experience of Jackie Robinson and any number of other, uh, not just athletes, but also famous black entertainers that people could enjoy their movies. They could love listening to their albums. Um, they would show up at their games or at their, in Gibson's case, their tennis matches, but away from the spotlight, away from the playing arena, they were having the same difficulties and challenges that uh, African-Americans who were not famous and were not wealthy, the same experiences that those folks were having. Despite having like a relative, I mean, I'm not even sure about this, but despite having a relatively of higher amount of wealth, say, than like, or yeah, is that the case? Yeah, fame is not always a buffer. Right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I have this assumption that like, the history of sports is missing a lot of stories um and like in that in, in the intersection of places that you study like you've already brought up um a couple stories there between women's history african-american history are there a lot of missing stories or are there any that you know anything that stands out that maybe no one would have heard of oh i think there are always missing stories and i'm fond of saying that being a historian is like being a detective you're always searching for sources and there are always questions and you're looking for the answers to those questions. And one of the exciting things about this field or this line of work is that you can inspire and encourage other people to uh, pose new questions and to seek answers to those questions, to look for new sources. So it's work that, that uh, will never end. All of us stand on the shoulders of other people. And so I know that my work has been inspired by and encouraged by a number of scholars that I've, I've met, but then ironically to think about being encouraged by people that you haven't met, but you just think about the work that they've done and how it's um, raised certain questions that I hope to answer to pursue with my Gibson biography. And then to think that in my own work with students, whether they're undergraduates or graduate students, that I have the the opportunity and really the responsibility to to encourage them and through doing that, just uh, I think having an impact on on the kinds of stories, the kind of histories that are ultimately told. Yeah, and I am gonna ask you about the book, but I do have another question just about like how <laughs> okay. you do what you do. Like, because I I studied um, ancient history and I, I studied women's history um, for my PhD. And in ancient context, you're like, you're just like digging through all kinds of like, random thing you might have one like an epitaph with a name on it and then another place you have like a bowl that a woman might have held <laughs> like you're trying to you're trying to put together like basically clues that are that are really difficult to or like put together a puzzle that's difficult to solve i'm guessing that like more recent history would be a little bit easier but how do you on a day-to-day -day level like when you find a question that no one's answered or you're trying to mine something out how do you actually do what you do oh you have to be able to sit with uncertainty mm. and you have to be able to wait. So you might find a collection 
And that can be very, very exciting. And at the same time, um, you might only have fragments or a part of the story in that collection. And then you have to go about the work of seeking out the other parts. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's possible that you don't you don't find what you're looking for. So you always have to be open for uh, or open to just uh, the unknown and maybe even even the unknowable. I mean, I'm fond of thinking about with biography in particular, the fact that I, I've likened it to, to maybe a sweater or a jacket, you know, in terms of thinking about just walking in that person's shoes, but um, that sweater, that jacket, it's never going to fit you perfectly. Mm. So, so if that makes sense, the sense of um, there's, there's still, I think, an element of mystery involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you did choose to help unveil one mystery in your recent book. Um, it's called Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson. And why did you choose to focus on her? I just thought she was a really fascinating person. And she was someone who was deserving of more attention. And fortunately, that's beginning to happen, certainly with my book, but in 2019 with the unveiling of the the statue, whereas the uh, artist Eric Golder likes to say of his work, the monument of her that's now on the grounds of the National Tennis Center. I was struck by her story, as we said a few minutes ago, that someone could be so famous and yet not always be recognized or always be appreciated for her skills and certainly not rewarded in her time, uh, rewarded for her skills in the way that athletes today are. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by all that she uh, had to go through to reach the top in tennis. So Gibson didn't come from a family of tennis players. She came from quite a difficult background of being born to sharecroppers in South Carolina in 1927. And then 30 years later, she's the champion of Wimbledon and the champion of the United States Nationals, the U.S. Open of today. Mm-hmm. How in the world does that happen? How does how does one go from that kind of beginning to reaching the top of the tennis world? And really the, the thing that brought me to Gibson, it wasn't tennis. I learned about her tennis exploits as a child, the highlights that Many people know about her being the first African-American to compete at Wimbledon, the first African-American to compete at what's now the U.S. Open. I came to her through golf. When I learned that she was the first African-American woman to compete on the Ladies Professional Golf Association tour, I was immediately struck. And I thought, imagine what she went through in tennis. And then she turns around and she has this golf career. First of all, what kind of person, what kind of woman would do that, would integrate two sports? And then what must her experiences have been? Those were the questions. Those were, at that moment, many years ago, the, the mysteries that brought me to Gibson and, and that ultimately led to, led to this book. And what were some of the answers that you found? Like, how did she, I was, I'm so curious, like, how did she come from those kind of humble beginnings, like, without kind of a dad to, to pull her along, you know, um, like some other stories, right? Like, how, um, how did, you, what, what's the answer to that question? Oh, we well, got to read the book again. I know, so. I got to read the book, <laughs> got to read the book. I know. But since you've been nice, I will answer. Uh, it took fortitude. 
mm-hmm. and perseverance. So I think your listeners, uh, if they have ever felt that they just had to keep on in the face of very difficult and hard odds and, mm-hmm. and small odds, if they've ever felt that about any part of their lives or their own careers, Serving Herself is the book for them. Mm. So you mentioned parents. Gibson's father was often unkind. In her autobiography, she describes him as striking her, as whipping her. She effectively ran away from home and dropped out of school when she was around 14 and and said in later years that uh, really from the time she was 14 on, she was on her own. And I think she brought that mentality of needing to take care of herself and look out for herself. She brought that to tennis, but I think that's ultimately the way she saw her life, which was that she had to really depend upon her own wits and her own skills. But it's also a story about someone who, uh, through her adeptness in sports, came to the attention of people who, who could support her. So this happened when she was a very young person and she took up paddle tennis. And then that led her to the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club, which she described as the elite black tennis club in Harlem. And a group of African-Americans there saw her abilities and they were certainly interested in having bragging rights within their African-American tennis community. So they supported her. Um, Two of those members, her first tennis coach, Fred Johnson, and a member of the club, Um, Rhoda Smith, I think they also saw her beyond her athletic abilities as just a young person who needed help and who needed support. Mm -hmm. And then within a few years, uh, by 1946, she came to the attention of two doctors, Dr. Hubert A. Eaton Sr. and Dr. Robert Walter Johnson, who saw a few things in her. They saw her as, again, a young person who needed support, uh, but they also saw her as having the skills, the potential to help them achieve their goal, their dream of breaking down the color barrier that surrounded tennis and that kept African-Americans out of the elite American and and international tournaments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I watched a couple of videos this morning and she certainly was like formidable. You know, like she, like I, she was speaking and like, I want to just hear you continue to talk. And I wonder if that was like, if she was older in the, in the video that I'm thinking of in particular, but like, oh, I wonder if that, it's, that kind of drew people in because when I asked that question, I expected you to tell me uh, personal characteristics that that pushed her forward, but instead you talked about the support the support that she had that she found along the way, which is kind of interesting. And maybe that's like the both and right where it's like I think it was the combination. It was her uh, fortitude and her belief in herself, and also the support that she received as a young person and. She said in an interview that she gave to Time Magazine, it was actually the cover story. So she was on a the cover of Time Magazine for one of their issues for August of 1957. This was after she won Wimbledon and just before she won the U.S. Nationals. She said that it doesn't matter who you are uh, and all the things that you achieve. There's someone there who helps you along the way. Mm. And looking back on her life in the 1970s, Gibson said many times that she felt that she was fortunate that when she was younger, there were people there who saw that she had potential and they reached out to to help her. Yeah. Were there things about that you found about her that you found out as you were doing your study that surprised you? I think I was surprised by 
how much I uncovered that changed perceptions of her as this person who so many other people had characterized as never saying anything related to uh, social matters or issues of social justice. I like to think that there was the Gibson of the 1950s, but there was also, and, and unfortunately, I think for many people, she's remained in that frame. But I think there was the Gibson of the 1950s who was carrying out her tennis career and who was deeply competitive, seeking to win those titles, not as the first African-American, but as Althea Gibson, who wanted to win and to be the best. And then there's the Gibson of the 1960s and beyond. So when she took up tennis, she made a point of saying, well, no, she felt that uh, her presence in tennis might be able to, or pardon me, her presence in golf might be able to inspire more African-American women to play and take up the game. And she recognized that she was playing golf at an advanced age. Many of the women on the LPGA circuit at that time, they were uh, somewhere in their late teens or they were in their 20s. She was in her 30s and taking on the second sport. And she felt that it's possible that golfers, no matter their background, but of advanced years, that they might be inspired by seeing her, someone in her 30s and later her 40s, playing the game of golf. Mm-hmm. So there was that part of Gibson. Also, no one had talked about uh, her interest in Title IX or women's rights in the 1970s. And in the 1960s and the 1970s, when she made speeches for various reasons, um, she wasn't necessarily uh, speaking in the vein, say, of Martin Luther King, for example, for civil rights. Uh, But she was speaking to predominantly African-American audiences, uh, many of them very young, young kids, teenagers, uh, and encouraging them to stay in school, to do the very best that they could in school so that they would have options and, and opportunities in life. So I like to think of, of that part of Gibson's life as not Gibson as an activist, but Gibson as, as an advocate for causes that she believed in. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. I think, um, and I'm, I'm so curious what you think about this, that like in observing sometimes the first person that enters a new space, like whether that's like the first woman in a certain job or the first African-American or, and, and, and Anthea was certainly like, a an intersection of a lot of different firsts right that they're um like that often they're just doing their thing you know and then happen to be the first and then it, be, it comes later like all of the sort of political social outcomes of what they've done is that that's just me observing the world is that do you find that to be true in your work i think she definitely just wanted to win and to be the best. And she wanted to do that without the pressure of being a representative or being a symbol. And she recognized the pressure that came along with being the first. And I think this is one of the reasons that she didn't really like being compared with Jackie Robinson. She didn't like being called the Jackie Robinson of tennis. And I think one of the reasons for this was the fact that she knew that Robinson approached his baseball career as an opportunity to excel. He could excel in his own right. And in doing so, uh, actually deliberately, his success could then um, open doors and change perceptions of African Americans and open doors for them and any number of other 
industries and, and walk, walks of life. And then we know, of course, after his baseball career, um, he had begun the, the activist work and was doing that when he played baseball, but it really took off and he continued to do more after he left the game. Um, that was not a part of Gibson's plan. And uh, again, it's not to say that she didn't have ideas about social matters. It's not to say that she never spoke those ideas. It's that she wanted to have her career and she wanted to challenge herself and reach the top first and foremost as Althea Gibson. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Do you think that there's something special about tennis um, that kind of allowed that space for Gibson to thrive? I think just the fact that it existed. (laughs) And and I, I don't mean that flippantly. The fact is there were just so few opportunities for women to have the national stage, the national spotlight in sports and tennis gave that to them. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the other side of this is the fact that it was amateur tennis. So she wasn't making any money. None of the women were, but tennis was uh, effectively, you know, it's an old game that goes back to the middle ages, but the, the lawn tennis that we think of today is having its origins and, um, the United Kingdom, England, Wales in the 1870s, and then um, members of the American elite become enamored with it. And you've got the founding of the USLTA in 1881. And so it was a game that was there and it was regarded as acceptable for women in a way that other sports were not. And the other option that she saw and that she took was professional golf because the LPGA was founded in 1949, 1950. And she said when she took up golf, the reason she did so was because that was really the only other thing. There was bowling. Um, but uh, also for practical reasons, it's sort of funny. She said that, you know, she already knew that she could take one object and hit another because she'd done <laughs> that with tennis. Mm-hmm. And so golf was another sport that enabled her to do that. Right. Was part of the move to golf about making money? It was. It was about making money, and it was also about having another space for competition and for satisfaction. And unfortunately, tennis was not kind to Gibson when it came to uh, the professional ranks. So uh, she dances with Lou Hode at the Wimbledon Ball in 1957, and for people who get a copy of the book, serving herself, they can see I've got a picture of them all decked out in their finest, having a good time. But Lou Hode had just signed a contract to play professional tennis for $125,000 in 1957 figures. Gibson didn't have that kind of opportunity. And gender was very much a part of it. Uh, Men had always had more and better opportunities in professional tennis. Now, of course, they did once they went pro, they gave up the opportunity to play in their major tournaments, especially the the Grand Slams, but they could make money in ways that women in tennis could not. Mm-hmm. And uh, once Gibson did turn professional, it was a very hard road. And she actually wound up losing money on the endeavor. It basically turned into a gamble. And she was deeply dissatisfied with life away from tennis because she was just an athlete through and through. And she wanted to win and to be the best and to beat 
everyone at everything. And it was very hard to find a replacement for that, find satisfaction for that yen in anything else. Uh, so, So she turned to golf. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want, or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But, as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tofosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tofosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. 
It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. What did you personally learn during your journey of writing? Oh, I think I learned lessons in fortitude. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is that from Gibson herself kind of thing or in in the writing itself? (laughs) Well, I'd like to think that I had some of that already, whether it's the combination of uh, innately, but I'm also a big believer in how we just learn, right? And we grow and we adapt. And uh, when we don't succeed, if we keep going, we ultimately figure things out. I'm a big believer in that. Mm-hmm. But I just learned so much about her dedication to tennis and how uh, you know, one of her mentors, it was Dr. Eaton, said that she put untold hours into her game. Mm-hmm. He said that after she won Wimbledon for the first time. And that meant going out and practicing most likely even when she didn't really want to. Mm-hmm. And it meant finding a way and finding the time and making the time and setting up the circumstances so that she could get better. And so just from the perspective of, of writing, and maybe this is a, a good point for your listeners to think about if they are writers or really any for anything that anyone wants to do, Um, you're not always going to feel like making that trip to the archive or to whatever library it is. And maybe you don't feel like sitting behind your desk, but make the time. Um, Ultimately it will be worth it. And no matter how small it seems, the accomplishment for that day is you've got it, you've done it. Uh, And that's doing that puts you, it will put you one step closer to your ultimate goal. Yeah, I think we talk about this a lot on the show. Like, I think there's a tension kind of in the zeitgeist right now between this kind of focus that we have in the health and wellness world around balance, Mm. you know, and being, and that's important, right? About finding a place to renew yourself so you can continue on. But then also that kind of the fact that we do know that a lot of folks who are extremely successful are so because they have put in 
I love this phrase, untold hours, you know? Um, so how did, you know, how would you say that Gibson struck that balance? And I'm also curious about you and how you struck that balance with your, your writing process too. I always prefer to talk about Althea. Yeah, I, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> how did she do it? It helped that she was so passionate about the things that she did. I don't think she ever did anything half-heartedly. So even when she decided she wanted to have a singing career, she was all in. And one of the things that I admire about her, and certainly one of the things that I think I, I learned from her or something that perhaps I enhanced over the years was this belief, I think, in keeping the, the desire I think of as warm. Don't let it go cold. Mm. So even before she had the opportunity to cut first test albums and then to make the actual record that became Althea Gibson Sings, mm -hmm. she would sing on the tennis circuit. So when she was abroad, for example, and the tennis players were all together, they might go to a nightclub or to some hotel that had a band and a stage, and she would sing. Mm -hmm. uh, when she was... Uh, she always loved music. So when she was in high school, things didn't work out with the choir. So she gave up the choir, but she joined a small jazz combo. So in terms of just the practicality of anything that we do, make the time, carve it out. That's the way to, to keep the dream, the project, to keep it warm, always to keep it in your sights. Yeah, I'm inspired hearing this. You know. Oh, great! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just like even just the you know the um. I did read about the music piece, and it's like just hear, even just hearing that's like okay, you know that um that she's successful or tried wholeheartedly to do so many different things, right? And sometimes actually like the level of success doesn't really matter. It's the wholeheartedness that feels like um, it, it really matters. Um, so and, and she had her ups and downs. So there were times when she let, we'll say she let things go cold. So the opposite of this warmth that I keep talking about. One of the downturns in her life happened in the middle 1950s. After she earned her degree in physical education at college, she took a job for two years at a college in Missouri in Jefferson City. And that was a, a difficult period because she was in the Midwest, which is a fine place to be, but that wasn't the heart. It wasn't anywhere close to the heart of the tennis circuit. So she found herself playing less frequently. She found her skills because she wasn't practicing as much. She found them you know, deteriorating. Um, but she also found that she wanted to have that career again. And so she ultimately left and decided to give herself another chance to give herself the opportunity to, um, to have the career that ultimately she's now known for with the, the five Grand Slam singles titles and 11 overall across singles, doubles and mixed doubles. Quite a record. Hmm. It is incredible. Um, and what are you, you know, coming out the other side of the writing process and everything like what are what are the main things that you're hoping folks will learn or take away after reading your book oh i hope they see what a renaissance woman 
Althea Gibson was. Tennis player, golfer, singer, actress, public speaker. I hope they see her as a trailblazer. And certainly I'm, I'm a historical fan of Jackie Robinson. I just spent three days uh, over the course of the last two weeks talking with my students about him and we've had a, a great time. Uh, but I also want my students and really everyone to know that uh, Jackie Robinson had a contemporary who was a woman named Althea Gibson. And uh, she had her own struggles and unique experience where sports integration was concerned. And I hope this book inspires people to pay more attention to the tennis before the open era, because there are a number of uh, women in the game, Maureen Connolly, uh, one of someone who supported Gibson, who played long before she did, Alice Marble. Uh, she's a very important figure. I think it's important for people to, to recognize that tennis has this whole fascinating history that predates uh, the open era that predates the, the late 1960s and uh, so many of the, the figures that we talk about and that we focus on today. Yeah, I think that's a little bit why I asked about tennis earlier. You know, tennis is one of the, um, I haven't studied modern history very much, um, but I, I am aware as a sports person that like tennis was the first really one of the first sports and now the sport that has one of the greatest amounts of gender equity in it in terms of prize money uh, media time etc and i'm assuming that like we often trace that back to like the billy jean kings of the world and the movement that came out of that but there must have been some seeds even ahead of that you know that were planted that like created an environment in which there could be that strong feminist voice in in tennis um it specifically and to some extent in golf too so i i'm not that surprised that those are the two sports that uh that althea was part of oh i appreciate what you say because uh, billy jean king said at the ceremony in 2019 when the gibson statue was unveiled at the billy jean king national tennis center which carries her name uh, she said something to the effect of that uh, she stood on gibson's shoulders mm -hmm. And so King, especially in, in the last several years, has spoken publicly about how she definitely recognizes uh, that there were uh, women who played tennis before she did. And uh, you know, King has done so much in terms of labor and activism. But uh, there were players like Gibson who had a, a very diff difficult and different uh, road to follow within the game of tennis. And uh it's it's also worth, as you point out, recognizing that um, tennis is so interesting because, again, you have the tournaments, but men and women are playing them. Mm -hmm. And you also have men and women playing together in mixed doubles. So it's it's so interesting the ways in which there's there's overlap, right? And there's uh, there were opportunities for them to connect and discuss, but also, we know, of course, that uh, sometimes the men in tennis were not always supportive of the things that the women wanted to do in terms of, of course, you know, later on during the open era, equal pay, for example. So then that that's another layer of the story, mm. that they're playing the same events and they are appearing on the same magazine covers, but they're not always in agreement about where the sport should go. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think and tennis is also interesting to me in that because the women have been kind of in on the main stage for a little bit longer than some other sports, it's the women's side of the sport also has taken on its own um, it has its own shape, you know, like people often talk about, like they prefer the women's game because the rallies are longer. Like it has, it's, it sort of has its own fans and its own, like, um, which is kind of interesting. Whereas like other sports, there's still that direct comparison almost, um, as the women tend, you know, like in women's soccer, the fights that are being fought right now for equal pay. Right. I think there's still this like comparison in the media or with, commentary online i guess is more what i mean that about like oh the women's game isn't as interesting it's not as fast i don't want da, 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 da. but like as time goes on if you allow those you know allow those athletes more of the main stage more funding da, da, then the sport should evolve in its own in its own way too and i think that's um yeah it's it's just fun to hear like i i thank you for bringing forward like this story of althea too um and and just pulling it more out of history into the into the light because those these are all the stories that we need to know and understand you know thank you sarah mm-hmm. um, okay so for our audience i have a couple more questions but where can we find the book uh you can find the book anywhere where books are sold so your favorite um seller no matter where that happens to be Great. And I'm inspired now too. I did read the first few chapters, but I did not get through it. Um, so I'm excited to go back to it, um, especially after talking to you. And what are you working on now? Oh, I have a few things I'm working on, but nothing that I want to share with the world <laughs> uh, right now. Uh, I think I'm really enjoying these opportunities that I have uh, through podcasts and, and other interviews and certainly in person. Uh, to talk about serving herself, to talk about Althea Gibson, um, pre-open era tennis. And I'm also very much enjoying uh, teaching my students. So my lecture course this semester is African-Americans in sports. Mm-hmm. And my seminar is biography and U.S. sports history. I'm also really looking forward to the fall semester when I'm going to teach a seminar that's about women in sports in the United States. Well, that all sounds amazing. Okay, where can, um, you said you've done a few podcasts and stuff. What are some of the ones you would, other couple that you might point someone to? Oh, sure. So uh, first of all, to any of people who have interviewed me, I've enjoyed my time speaking with all of you. <laughs> but since you've encouraged me to spotlight mm-hmm. uh, something, um, I would say Doug Doyle uh, for WBGO, which is in Newark, New Jersey. So we did that a few weeks back. And Doug has what we might think of as that natural booming radio voice. Mm. (laughs) So, and uh, that was also special because Gibson spent really the last four decades of her life in uh, New Jersey. And uh, so it was a special opportunity to talk with someone from a New Jersey station about her, her life and and her career, uh, especially since he was interested in, in those New Jersey years. And, this is also the time when I should talk about Gibson's brief stint in politics. She was the athletics commissioner for the state of New Jersey for a brief period in the, the 1970s. Wow. Wow. She did everything. Yes. <laughs> and she would tell you that too. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> That's something else that I liked about her. Yeah. Yeah. Even when people, I hope, I hope readers will see this. Even when people tried to, forget her or maybe they just didn't know about her she refused to go away Mm -hmm. so she 
creatively found ways to remain in the public eye and to link her playing days with her lives and the players such as uh, Martina Navratilova or um, Chris Everett, um, Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King in the 1980s, Steffi Graf. Mm -hmm. uh, Gibson refused to be forgotten. Right. It's a, it's really, you know, on International Women's Day, um, we had a panel um, here at my office. And uh, one of the things we talked about was like how, how balance that, balance the way that we either bring our authentic selves into a situation, like just go in, be yourself, doesn't matter what anyone says, like this is me. And then the times when we, when we not necessarily have to, but want to like step back and leave space for like, for someone else or for, and I feel like from this conversation, like Elsie has like navigated that very well because she's, you know, like you're saying, it's like you, the authentic who she is, is shining through all the time. But at the same time, she must have adjusted herself, you know, being an African-American in a white sport or just there's, there must've been like places for that. So um, yeah, it's just fun to see someone be so successful in so many ways. She didn't have a blueprint. She had to figure all of this out on her own. And she had to learn to accept as she did that not everyone would like her and not everyone would want her around, but she didn't let that stop her. And, you know, she challenged the color barrier in two sports. How many other people have, have done that? How many other people did that? Mm -hmm. And with the golf career, because she was the first there, she had to draw upon what she did in tennis and then adapt it. And also to think about the ways in which she was a different person um, as a woman in her 30s trying to do this than she was when she was a woman in her 20s making these, uh, these bold moves in tennis. So it's also a story about uh, how a person changes and grows. Mm. I love it. Well, Ashley, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been so fun chatting with you. I've really enjoyed this, Sarah. So we can add this to the list of, of great experiences. Oh, good. <laughs> Yay, I made it. <laughs> Everyone has, but but you're you're there too. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs>
And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match. And then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedas. Hedas designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedas has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. <laughs> 